T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. 97.1 FM Talk Podcast. This hour of the Mark Reardon Show is sponsored by Gamma Tree Experts. Your trees deserve the best care. Call Gamma Tree Experts. Welcome back. Hour number three is I was typing an email, so I just let the Lissy music play. She sounds a lot like um, Stevie Nicks, but it's not Stevie Nicks. Josh Krasauer, 97.1 FM Talk Political Insider, senior political correspondent at Axios will be with us. I'm very curious about his take on the uh, House Speaker race. We also have an audio cut of the day. And let's just start with the uh, speaker controversy with Jazz Shaw, columnist for Hot Air, back with us for this first time in 2023. Happy New Year. How are you? Doing good, Mark. It's been a while. How are you doing? It has been. Did you have a nice holiday? I know that because I've been following outside of that week between Christmas and New Year's, I was, you know, a little quiet, didn't pay attention to all the news, but they've been keeping you busy at Hot Air. It's not like you had a lot of time off. No, not really. Uh, the, the whole House Speaker thing just absorbed everybody in what should have been a calm time where you're mostly writing about local news. It kind of blew up. But, you know, hey. It, it, it was fun to watch in some ways. I think it was fun to watch in some ways as well. But what's your take? I mean, I and I pointed this out. Michael Goodwin from the New York Post was with me a couple hours ago. I tried to, I guess my strategy was I dialed back on the hyperbole, um, this, this notion that this was a big embarrassment to the country or to Republicans. Look, it wasn't something that probably should have gone way, down the way that it did. But there were legitimate concerns on the part. I guess what I did on Friday, too, Jazz, is I sort of broke down that group of 20. I don't think the group of 15 or maybe even 16 was the same as the group of two to three or four. And there were legitimate concerns in there about spending. So I think they worked it all out. Does this make McCarthy a weak speaker? I don't know. I guess we'll find that out. Well, some of the rules he agreed to concern me because one member being able to call for a vote to remove the speaker that it, it doesn't mean he gets removed, but it does mean that somebody can shut down ongoing negotiations and, and progress for that, because then you have to stop and go vote to make sure you still have a speaker. You know, so yeah, I think some of them were a bit unreasonable. Um, other ones uh, where they demanded to make sure committees were set up. Uh, to investigate the weaponization of the Justice Department and other things. Those were important, and, but I think he was already willing to agree to those anyway. 
so I, I guess my bottom line is it was probably going to end this way eventually anyhow, but they codified a few things that I think most conservatives around the country will probably agree with. Uh, we'll, we'll see. I mean, if they turn into sticklers and start shutting down from their own side, then, yeah, it's going to be a problem. But I don't know that's going to happen. Yeah, the vacate the chair question was confusing to me. And I, I think I mentioned this on Friday as well. I reached out to former Illinois Congressman Ronnie Davis, who just left Congress. Mary Miller beat him in the primary. And she was one of the holdouts, actually, in the 20. And I, I asked him, I said specifically, what am I missing on the on the uh, one vote to vacate the chair? Doesn't that basically mean just one person can raise an objection for, you know, McCarthy? And he said, yeah. I said, well, what prevents them from doing that? tomorrow. And he said nothing. But here's Congressman James Comer on that. This is what he thinks, at least. I don't believe that there'll ever be any serious threat to Kevin McCarthy's speakership. If Kevin McCarthy ever did something so bad that there would be a threat to uh, him vacating the chair, I think we would meet as a conference. We would iron it out and, uh, you know, take action uh, accordingly as a conference. But so that was there funny ma- there, because what, couldn't you just have done that as a conference and say, look, here's the votes, here's where we don't have the votes, let's kind of figure this out behind closed doors and then go to the votes so you don't have 15 rounds of it, Jazz? Exactly. That, that's where you can tie things up when you should be getting other things done. They've got a lot of work. If they, if they want to satisfy the demands of the conservative base to do the things that were completely ignored and whitewashed, um, under Democratic leadership, it, it's going to take time. They got to set up the committees, they got to call witnesses, they got a whole bunch of things they have to do. And if it just keeps getting shut down over procedural issues, then I think the people that were making those demands are going to become very unpopular, even with their own most conservative base, because they're just going to be standing as a dam in front of their. They're, really less than two years you've got to get anything done because we already saw in the midterms we don't know that the gop is going to be taking a lot of control in 2024 yet a lot of pieces on that board so yeah i i hope they all get together and just say we sent our message we established our priorities now let's move forward with them that's my hope anyway when all is said and done yeah this was drama for those of us who follow this and most of the country even people that voted in the midterms were were bored with it or didn't understand it so moving forward i think that's it's incumbent upon republicans to to kind of keep focused on what the path might be in a difficult time with a president that's not going to sign any of your legislation. That's why, I guess, investigations and everything else will be the focus. By the way, we did get some good news from Missouri. I think today, Congressman Jason Smith, who uh, Jazz was thinking about entering a very crowded Senate primary here in Missouri last year, uh, did not get in, opted to stay in the House, was hoping to be named the chair of House Ways and Means. And in fact, he got that. And that's a powerful, one of the most powerful committees. It's the Tax Writing Committee on Capitol Hill. Jason Smith will be the chair of that committee. So I think that's big news. You this afternoon or earlier today wrote about, and I've been watching some of the video that's been thrown up on Fox from El Paso, where, boy, there's some scenes in El Paso that look a little different than the few days before President Biden visited, right? Oh, yeah, the big whitewash. That, uh, it's being totally ignored in the mainstream press, obviously. But, yeah, El Paso has been a disaster if you've been watching the coverage, mostly on Fox News and conservative outlets. Um, El Paso had turned into just a disaster area. Uh, it was one of the worst hit places with the migrants. And 48 hours before Joe Biden was going to make his very first trip to the border, 
of his entire presidency, or actually of his entire career. <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. They, they sent the Border Patrol out, and they went and rounded up hundreds of migrants who had been sleeping on the streets for a long time now, put them on buses, sent them to Mexico, sent out cleanup crews, and cleaned up all the debris, and made the town look nice and nighty, nice and tidy, sorry, uh, so that when the president and, more importantly, the media showed up, it's just like, oh, there's nothing going on. There's nothing to see here, really. The pictures and, are like the Daily Mail has a collection of pictures, why it takes them to do this and not the New York Times. But the before and after pictures of like some restaurants and other locations in El Paso, they look completely different from one day to the other. Exactly. It, it was I hate to keep using the word. It was a disaster area. A lot of crime, uh, people not getting blankets in the cold and things like that. And then by the time the president showed up, yeah, nice, clean, tidy streets. There was not a, a migrant to be seen. They had all been taken. The, the people that we were supposed to be so concerned about that they were seeking freedom and asylum and everything, we're supposed to be worried about them. They all got packed up on buses and dropped off in Mexico. So they're, they're, they're being used as political pawns by the Biden administration. They don't really care about these people. Oh, look, these numbers are starting. 1.7 million gotaways. Here's Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas. These points that I, that I laid out uh, mm-hmm. about uh, ending catch and release, uh, uh, about detaining uh, people who are coming across the border illegally, uh, about uh, uh, turning back across the border, people who are coming across the border illegally. All of those are things uh, that uh, the president and the United States already have the legal authority to do, and they are not doing. Uh, and until they step up and start doing this, all these other things they're doing is nothing more than a dog and pony show and is not going to stop anybody from coming across the border illegally. So and he's right about that. And I, I don't know why. I really am confused by why there's not more focus on this particular crisis. And now you have Eric Adams and some of the other you know, mayors that are saying we, we can't handle this. Well, then the administration needs to do something about basically letting people flood over the borders and they're not at this point. If it wasn't for the courts getting involved, this would be even worse. Yeah, that's exactly right. Most of the Democratic mayors in the larger cities, uh, as I pointed out in a couple of articles, are still treating this as a funding problem. It's like, well, it would be fine to have these millions of people coming across the border if we just had enough federal assistance and we could find housing and food and all these other services for them. No, that's not the problem. The problem is you need to stop them from flowing in in these numbers, along with all the human traffickers and all the fentanyl smugglers. And meanwhile, I, I'm sure you've already covered this. Uh, there's a war going on on the other side of the border right now between the Mexican government and the cartels, and the Mexican government is losing, and that could spill across our borders. So, no, th- this is a this is a huge story, and if it comes across our borders. I think even places like CNN will be forced to cover it. You you wrote about something today. Jess Shaw from HotAir.com is with us about artificial intelligence. On Friday afternoon, I had a, a friend of mine, Vance Crow, who's got a great podcast and does some other great work here in St. Louis. And he had exposed me to something called Chat Dash, or I'm sorry, Chat.OpenAI.com, where you can basically ask it questions. It will answer uh, very novelly, you can ask it to write a paper for all these things, right, that, that you can do. Now, you got something today that is called ChatGPT, which was, um, this is another AI startup, right? Tell me about that. Uh, it's, it's an offshoot of the same one. Um, ChatGPT is the, the public function. They re- it's been out for a while. I've played with it extensively, written a couple articles about it. It's the smartest one I've seen. Um, 
uh, give your listeners an example. I asked it to uh, tell me its opinion about theories about how many physical dimensions there are in the universe that we can experience. And it wrote this five or six paragraph long thing that really looked pretty scholarly. And so it's smart about things like that. But now they've realized that students in schools can access that. And if they have a question uh, for an exam or for their homework that they didn't learn the material, they can just go ask ChatGPT and it will write something that is indistinguishable from having been written by a well-written, well-spoken, knowledgeable person. And so now they've blocked it on all public devices. Well, and this makes sense because when we were talking about this with, um, with um, Vance on Friday evening, that was one of the things that I brought up. I mean, why, why wouldn't – I'm not encouraging people to cheat, but why wouldn't you? Obviously, if you have something like this, people are going to use it to their advantage. Exactly. And it's, it's not just the schools. I, I think I mentioned that in there as well. There are people raising concerns that some companies that are strapped for money uh, might start eliminating jobs and including journalists, you know, because this thing writes some really good print ready text and draws on more sources than even a journalist can go look up online and research in a short amount of time. And it does it in seconds. So it can write entire articles and papers and it's already done it. I, I'm really at the point. Um, you know, I've got two kids that are, you know, that are out of college and one in elementary school, but I, I cannot justify, I know the parents don't want this because they want communication, these kids having any phones when they're in school. I don't know why we just don't pass something. This will be where I sound a little cranky, like an old fart, yep. right? Pass something that says you can't, and I know you're not supposed to bring them out when you're in class, but how about you put it in the locker, you don't have your phone with you for seven hours a day. Would that be too tough? I think you know what? probably would I, be. I, I, I know... Because we live in this current era, and that's what's accepted. I see what you're saying. Well, they, they need to have communications. They should have their phones. I'm sorry. I was born when Eisenhower was president. I went all the way through school <laughs> when the only phones we had were at home, plugged into a wall yes, yes. with a cord that connected the receiver to it. I somehow managed to graduate in the top ten of my class and went on and got extra education. Humble brag from um, Jazz I, Shaw. Did you notice that? Go ahead. Sorry. It's not even humble at all. I'm bragging. <laughs> I did well. But you know what? If we have smart kids in school right now and they're paying attention, they can do the work the same way we always did. You don't need to always be tied into the Internet. And you know that these kids are, are – they've been doing it for years, right? They're, they're pretty good, and the teachers do their best to sort of sniff out things that might be on the Internet with cross-referencing. But this AI stuff is going to take this into a different dimension. I don't know how you control it. I really don't. Because there's going to be more I, and more of those either. types of sites. These are broad language-based databases that have literally, if not just hundreds of billions, in some cases trillions of entries, um, that it can go and in a matter of seconds search. So if you ask a question um, that's like, well, what do, you, what do you think about or what, what's the solution to this? And you give it a, like, I don't know how to do cosine of an angle anymore it will immediately come back with a full explanation of how to correctly calculate the cosine of an angle. And you might have just slept through class and not even studied it, but it'll give you a good essay style answer that you can turn in and you'll graduate not knowing nearly as much 
as the school assumes that you knew, and you'll arrive in college, and maybe you'll do the same thing there, yeah, well, and we'll be... graduate an entire generation of dummies. There, there's something to look forward to. I, I certainly can see that happening. Uh, one more topic here. I have to give you credit. I know I did last week because you took a little time to write about our uh, transgender execution. And it was offensive to me that our St. Louis Post-Dispatch and other media picked up on this, which is probably how it became on your radar. This um, Amber McLaughlin was his or her name. Uh, it was someone she, he dated women for his whole life. And then all of a sudden, when he was facing execution, decided to be trans. As you pointed out, Jess, there were no hormones or anything like that that took place, right? No, there, there was no transition whatsoever. Um, he had been married. He'd been with women. He was still apparently completely male and straight uh, until he went to prison. And he remained that way until it was just within visual sighting of when the, uh, executioner was coming for him i'm sorry her and suddenly was transgender and tried to use that as well i have mental problems and i have dysphoria and you know you shouldn't execute me but that didn't work and now he's gone well and you know this was one of the things that i try to do and you did this when you wrote about the column is put this in the perspective of what happened to the victim because this was someone who was brutally murdered stabbed to death and then he dragged her and dumped her in a river yeah, just stabbed multiple times, had been stalking her to the point where she had to have police escorts sometimes to leave her job and was terrified. Uh, he'd done so many things, red flags, as they like to say, but he still somehow snuck into her place of work and killed her and, like you say, took her out and dumped her body next to a river and then confessed as soon as he got caught and they and took them to the body. There was no question of his guilt you know, and it, it was a horrific case that had gone on for years. So, yeah, I mean, did anybody, do, does anyone ever deserve to be executed by the state? Uh, that's up to the listener to decide. But if anybody does, that was a pretty good candidate. I would say so, too. Uh, Jashaw, Happy New Year. Always great to have you on. Hotair.com is where you find his work. And we'll talk soon. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Mark. Happy New Year to you and all your listeners. 524, we'll talk about the uh, the speaker's race with my friend Josh Crossauer from Axios. And an audio cut of the day as well, coming up. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 
We have an audio cut of the day coming up here tomorrow on the show. Congresswoman Ann Wagner will be with us. I'd love and I can't wait to hear Ann's take on what happened last week and into the weekend. Brian Kilmeade will be here. Dr. Buzz Hollander from the Big Island of Hawaii. And we'll talk about some things going on with parents and education as well. Josh Crossauer is my guest. Josh and I have talked politics probably for a dozen years now. <clears throat> and he's worked for several organizations. And every time I think that we've seen the craziest thing in politics, Josh Crossauer, who's now with Axios, something like last week. Week happens and we make history, right? How are you? Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Mark. I mean, that was one of the wildest reality shows you'll ever see on Capitol Hill. There was drama. We didn't know how it was going to end. And you even had a little bit of the Jerry Springer show at the very end with uh, almost right. uh, hijinks coming coming between Matt Gates and uh, the Congressman Rogers from Alabama. So it was, look, I mean, that that's a guy who wants that job. A whole lot. Kevin McCarthy has always wanted to be speaker. I don't know if most of that that, that caucus wants the job, and he wanted it so badly he was willing to uh, wait it out a week and be embarrassed, really, on, on national TV for, for that period to, to get it with a whole lot of entertainment in between. Let me, let me ask some questions that I'm not even convinced on this Monday that we have answers to, but I'm going to try anyway, because I heard you. You were doing you know great work on Fox calling in last week, and I kept wanting to, to bother you and say, why— is he doing this over and over again? So that was one thing that was confusing to, to a lot of the American people and even to people who talk about this on a regular basis. Why not go back, hash this out in conference, see where the votes are? But there was a different strategy. Vote after vote after vote, maybe changing a few minds at a time, but then it gets to the 15 votes. So why do that as opposed to another path to figure this out, Josh? Well, I think part of the strategy, well, number one, I think, it's fair to say now, especially with the benefit of hindsight, that the McCarthy team was not prepared for the beginning of, of the year and uh, to expect a number of holdouts that, that initially were against him as speaker. That that was clear as day, that they expected maybe 8, 10 holdouts. We started out with about 19 or 20. That was a misjudgment and a, and yeah. a strategic error, because uh, otherwise you would do some of this stuff behind the scenes. And once that happened, once the scope of the defections was, was made clear, I think they did try to cut these deals, try to do, show how that sausage was made publicly. Uh, but, but look, I mean, McCarthy, the, 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 the options other than McCarthy were limited. I, I, I did think someone like a Steve Scalise would come into play if McCarthy couldn't get the votes. And the question was, how long could McCarthy hold on for? I mean, Scalise certainly could do the job next in line, but he would never, you know, knife McCarthy in the back, so to speak. He right, was going to wait. Right. You know, if, any, if anyone was going to take, take McCarthy's place, it would have to be when it was absolutely clear that McCarthy couldn't get the votes. And what ended up happening is if you're one of the 20 rebels or one of the more Freedom Caucus-oriented Republicans, uh, you got a better deal with McCarthy as speaker than with anyone else without these rules changes that, that were agreed to. I mean, they, they've, they've basically secured uh, McCarthy winning this battle that was quite lengthy and quite embarrassing for the for the new for the new speaker, but at a cost of him giving up a lot of a lot of leverage when it comes to passing legislation, getting the budget done, uh, trying to raise the debt ceiling in a in a, in a big important uh, emergency. So I mean, this is this is a win for the rebels in that they, they they'd almost rather have the guy they don't like as much they, might, they may see as a little more moderate. Uh, and Kevin McCarthy and having someone a little more conservative who may actually at, at that point not have to give all, up all right. 
I'll well, there's, there's truth to that. There's no doubt. So what can can you, Josh Krauser from Axios is with us. Can you give us any insight into what changed Friday night? So I wrap up at six o'clock. I did my roundtable. They had, I guess, what was the 13th vote? It didn't come through. So now we're going to have a 14th vote. But in that 13th vote, he had changed a fair number of minds. So the assumption was, and I'm heading home that night, they're going to vote one more time. We're going to have a speaker. So they go through that 14th vote. And he's still on the losing end. And then you have the awkward period where, you know, the camera is on Boebert and Gates and they go to adjourn, Josh. So now there's a vote to adjourn. They seem to be counting the heads on that. They're going to go home and figure this out. Then it switches. And what happened in that moment? That's that's my question. What what happened in that, you know, half hour where they were going to adjourn and then they decided to have the 15th vote to put McCarthy over the top? Well, look, I think I think a lot of like Matt Gates was just playing with with McCarthy. There, there has been some reporting that uh, they wanted an extra week, or extra couple of days to to let let everything simmer out, and that was what the discussions, the fevered discussions, were on the House floor between Gates and McCarthy at the end, at like one thirty in the morning that that that, that evening. But um, you know, I think I, I honestly knowing some of these final holdouts, there, there's a lot of they're getting all this they're getting all these. This attention on national TV, Matt Gates is becoming a, a a celebrity villain among among Republicans. Like this is this is just very dramatic, and you're getting a lot of attention if you're one of these final holdouts. When when otherwise you'd just be a very anonymous backbencher. So I mean, look, I, they, the, the reporting suggests that there was some talk about waiting till Monday, and then that, that finally came together at the last minute. But you know, I think fundamentally these holdouts are all about celebrity, all about their own personal. Uh, advancement at the expense of the institution at the expense of their own party and, and that, that that's what these someone like lauren bobert and matt gates certainly stand for that kind of uh, political nihilism uh, they care about themselves they don't care about the congress they don't care about the republican party and, and they're they, they probably enjoyed every minute of, of the chaos uh, in the final. The final and I, th- I think they did. But I, I kind of had to separate out, you, you know, those two in particular from some of the other things that were being said. Look, I think Chip Roy and he was, I guess, the guy that there was, you know, doing some negotiation with. I think that Chip was making some decent points about why this was important to some of the rebels. But now what's done is done. They move forward. You have committee assignments. Let's get to some of that. Jason Smith from Missouri becomes the Ways and Means chairman. That's a big, big get for Jason Smith, who was going to run for the United States Senate, as you know. It's a good consolation prize. And he jumped over uh, Vern Buchanan, uh, who, who was a longstanding member, a wealthy uh, lawmaker from Florida, who was, uh, I guess, ostensibly next in line. But Smith is, is going to be a, a real Republican to watch in this upcoming Congress. Anything else that will come out of the they're going to vote tonight on the rules package, right? Anything else that really strikes you from that? Well, look, the big story I would watch in the coming days and weeks is the role of the defense hawks in the Republican Party, the the folks, there are a lot of Republicans, moderates, and and, and the Liz Cheney types who are really worried that these, uh, you know, what they might view as draconian spending cuts, uh, could could really jeopardize national defense, could jeopardize aid to Ukraine to help Ukraine defeat Russia. Uh, there was there's a lot of uh, unrest in the Republican Party that what was given up, the concessions that were made to get the, these lawmakers support, could really. Uh, spark another civil war, a different type of civil war within the Republican Party between folks who believe in a strong military and fiscal, you know, big, big time yeah. fiscal conservatives who are trying to get, you know, really 
steep cuts to, to the federal budget. So I have one of those members on tomorrow, as you know. So Ann Wagner is someone who is staunchly behind the defense of our country, especially because she's got some big contractors here in St. Louis. But look, I've always been the type of conservative, Josh, to say you have got to look. You know, this is a constitutional responsibility spending on the nation's defense. So first and foremost, that's important to say. But I do think that if you don't put some of that on the table, I think that's irresponsible. So I don't know why you can't have the defense hawks also be fiscally conservative to say, OK, well, what do we need? But they're, they're trying to bring pork home to the districts. And there's a lot of lobbying that goes on with all that, which is part of the point of the rebels, I think. Yeah, look, I mean, in theory, like if you had to design a process, Mark, in which you would you know, get legislation passed and have everyone look at every bit of spending, you know, the, that, that's the way to do it. Like that's the way, you know, any logical person would kind of draw up a process. But boy, we're talking about so much money that the federal government is allocated each and every year. And the reality, and it's, you know, every, every time a budget's passed, it's like everything is done in the final few days where, and, and, and the process sucks and, and it's not, it's not transparent and good government in many ways, but it may be the best option there is given given how big our bureaucracy and our government is these days. And I know like it's idealistic that they would shrink the government, try to keep it down to size, and that, that's a that, that's a that's a good and fair fair argument. But the reality is our government has gotten so unwieldy that that some of these processes are, are quite ugly, but it, it really is the best you know, the, no one has offered a, a more efficient or effective way of doing things. Uh, you know, and, and, and I know that the uh, these holdouts, they were they were for sequestration back in the Obama years. That caused a lot of problems because it cut cut the budget with, with without you know with a scalpel instead or with with a with an axe instead of a scalpel, and it, it created a lot of budgetary challenges. And it wasn't the smartest way to deal with uh, for, you know to, to be fiscally conservative. So you know, look, it, it, I think there are a lot of fair points made by, by by the fiscal conservatives, by some of the Freedom Caucus folks that Washington has gotten too bloated. But the reality is the alternatives have always turned out to, to, to create a lot, a lot of unintended consequences. So we, one of the biggest surprises for me, and I think part of this goes back to a week ago today, is the former president's lack of influence on all of this. Thoughts yeah, there? Yeah, I mean, you saw that. Yeah, you saw, Mark, that photo of Marjorie Taylor Greene holding her phone, Donald Trump on the line, Telling these rebels to to support Kevin McCarthy and Matt Rosendale, one of the final holdouts from Montana, giving her the hand, giving the phone the hand. I mean, Trump endorsed McCarthy. I mean, I, look, I think Trump could have perhaps done a little more at the beginning to aggressively endorse uh, McCarthy, but he was for him, you know, the whole way through. He reiterated his support through the, during this process, and it took 15 ballots to get just the bare minimum. To get McCarthy elected, so look, you, you, you can look at the polling just like I do. Uh, but Trump is still a, a popular figure with Republicans, but his support and the depth of his support has markedly declined over the last year. And uh, if that trajectory continues, he's not going to be the front runner to be president uh, for the, or at least the nominee in 2024. There are going to be some other alternatives like Ron DeSantis, as we've talked about. Uh, so I think you know this, this is the first. If you look at just the data, just the polling, even compared to January 6th, compared to all the low points in the Trump presidency, Trump's standing among Republicans, while still very good, is at a lower point than it's been at any time since 2016. Hey, did you watch, I sent this to you, I didn't know if you had seen it or had time, did you watch the Lucas Kuntz ad that got released the other day? I saw some of it, and I know, um, boy, I mean, that's going to be an interesting Senate race with, with Josh Hawley come 2024, but, um, you know, we'll, we'll, Kuntz is uh, certainly running a very uh, 
very populist, very uh, provocative campaign. But boy, Missouri is a tough state for any Democrat to crack these things. Well, it's interesting. You know, the ad, it's a long ad, and I can't play the whole thing now. I might play it after the break. But he, uh, Lucas is a guy, I and mean, I've had him on the air at one time. He's got a, a great background um, and really a resume that resembles more of a Republican. And I don't think the Democratic establishment gets behind a guy like that in a primary. I mean, it's a good ad. He's going to go after Hawley. You don't know what the climate's going to be in two years, but it's almost something that's better positioned for a Republican challenge, which is impossible pretty much to do against an incumbent U.S. senator. So I don't know what his um, his chances would be in a couple of years. But we've seen politics change very rapidly over the last few years, haven't we, Josh? Yeah. And look, I mean, all, all politics is still local to some extent. And, you know, Arizona was a Republican state, but but the critical mass of voters that are moving uh, in, in the Democratic direction, these are suburban moderate voters. And there are a whole lot of them in important parts of Arizona. Georgia is the same way. Missouri's a little different because the voters actually are moving to the Republicans and, and they're, you know, predominantly rural working class voters um, who, who are uh, very much in favor of Donald Trump and, and like the direction the party's gone in. So that's why, I mean, Hawley does, that's why Josh Hawley has really leaned into these culture war issues. He's leaned into to the, the populism or whatever you want to call it that he, he's made a name for himself with. And uh, look, I, I think that may be polarizing nationally. I don't think he could win a Senate race in Georgia or Arizona or Pennsylvania. But, but in Missouri, I think he's probably going to uh, be the favorite in Absolutely. any election he runs. Absolutely. There's no doubt about that. Josh, great to have you on. I was dying for your insight on everything that happened last week. The drama is over for now. I'm sure there's much more to come in 2023. Happy New Year to you, and we'll uh, we'll talk to you soon. We'll talk baseball soon, too. We had to skip baseball because it's, you know, kind of a slow time. We'll get back into it. We'll talk soon. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Happy New Year. You know, Sue, every once in a while I get to this point of the show and I have no idea what I'm going to do next. Except for audio cut of the day. I have that plan. But I was course. I was searching around here. I'm like, I, you know, I have a few minutes and I thought I could play this Lucas Kuntz ad, but it's more television. It's not really radio, so I, I'm skipping that. But Fred, see, Fred saves me every once in a while right now. I'm Fred Bottenheimer over there, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, Kenny. He slipped something into the stack here, which I think is interesting, and it's from the Washington Post, and I think this is certainly relatable. There's a woman by the name of Valeria, or Valerie, I'm sorry, Valerie Saibala knew the United Airlines representative she was messaging through the company's customer service portal was wrong about the location of her luggage. The nameless representative assured her that her suitcase was at a secure storage facility and would be delivered to her soon. But Sabala had slipped an Apple AirTag <laughs> tracking device <laughs> yes. inside her Travel Pro suitcase, and her iPhone was telling her that that was not at the facility. Instead, it was at an upscale apartment building in northeast Washington called The Chase. <laughs> so unsure that United would reunite her with her bag, Sibylla started an investigation. Over the next four days, she's 39-year-old research analyst, repeatedly returned to The Chase on Rhode Island Avenue. She schmoozed with concierges. She pleaded with police, rallied local news crews to document her efforts to find the suitcase. I love this. Yeah, I know, right? And then she put pressure on United. It worked. On Monday, she stood outside the chase. A third-party courier dropped off her bag, her TSA-approved lock still intact. In a statement to the Washington Post, United Airlines says that the agent contacted Sibylla to confirm that she got her luggage back. The airline is now investigating what it called a (laughs) service failure, (laughs) you think? United also said the third-party vendor it used to return the bag did not meet our standards. Now, I remember when we were talking about all the Southwest stuff, I said, and I've not done it, but I do think it's a good idea 
especially if you travel a lot, put one of those trackers on your bag. We had that story earlier in the year about the guy who tracked his bag. Remember the camera equipment? And he saw what yes. house it was in, and yes. it, that too was united. Um, so this is interesting because she, December 28th, she's on her way back to Washington. She was actually across the pond. Um, she's going through O'Hare. She makes the flight to Reagan National, but her bag does not. So she lands on December 28th. She didn't think she was going to have her suitcase, but she thought she'd get it within a day. So the bag comes the following day. She takes United up on its offer to have the bag delivered to her house. Okay. So then she's trying to track the delivery. She started looking at the Find My app on her phone, which was keeping tabs on the suitcase because of the air tag. The bag appeared to stay at the airport all of December 29th. The next day it was moved on through the suburbs, something that seemed normal. But around 6.30 p.m., the air tag stopped moving at a shopping center on Rhode Island <laughs> Avenue. There it stayed for more than an hour before what? popping across the street to the Chase apartment complex. So at the whole time this is all going on, she's chatting with customer service. Customer service is saying, nope, it's at the storage facility. It's going to be on your way soon. And and she's like, no, it's no, not it's because I can see where it is mall. right now. So she goes back to the Chase New Year's Day. She says that she found several empty suitcases that had been thrown away behind the building. Oh. One was tagged with the baggage tracking sticker that had been slapped on by an airline employee. So basically, she's seeing all these bags, and she's thinking, wait a second, people are stealing this stuff, right? Yeah, emptying and them out and throwing them. Tr- oh, my god! She says this to the, the agent, and the agent says, relax. And <gasps> Sibylla says, "That's uh, when they gaslit me, she goes, the rep told me to calm down, they'll deliver my bag, they'll have it safely, or that they have it safely in the distribution center. I knew that that wasn't true because of my oh AirTag. My so she says, I'm going to be aggressive. Here, she puts this on Twitter. She gets some media attention. Then she shows up at the, um, you know, the chase, and she finally founds the bag. But how about that? That is incredible. <laughs> it really is. I love that she watches it stop at a shopping mall, and he's saying it's in a secure facility. You need to calm down. Yeah. Can you imagine? No, but I do think that having those air, you know, those Apple those AirPods air- and the trackers, I wow. think, absolutely a good thing. Let's do this here this afternoon. Now, the audio cut of the day. Earlier today, we got some good news on Damar Hamlin. His doctor's making the announcement. Dr. Prince and I are thrilled and proud on behalf of UC to report to you that Damar Hamlin has been released and returned to Buffalo. Dr. Prince and I have spoken extensively with his care team in Buffalo, and I can confirm that he is doing well. And this is the beginning of the next stage of his recovery. Obviously, one of the questions that that we still don't know is what happened here. I mean, what was the cause? We continue to be ecstatic about his recovery. And as Bill mentioned, when we started all this, you know, what we told his parents is the only thing that mattered uh, was the patient in the bed and getting him back to him and his family um, and to his community. Uh, So we anticipate that he will undergo, you know, an ongoing series of tests and evaluations uh, to determine the etiology of what caused the incident on Monday night um, and to uh, treat any pathology that may be found. Obviously, one of the things that people want to know, and DeMar Hamlin's going to have to decide this with his physicians, and we don't know a lot of answers, but will he play football again? So uh, I, I think I think we're in the same place that we were um, in, the, in the last discussion, is that it is entirely too premature to discuss uh, not only his football, it's, it's that we're really focused on his day-to-day recovery. He, he still has... Um, a little bit of a ways to go in terms of his ongoing recovery. We're thrilled to where he is um, today. He's he's up. He's walking around. He's got an amazing, genuine sense of humor. Um, and his family is amazing. And, and we're happy he's with them. But in terms of any kind of conjecture to his future, um, it, it's still that's still significantly into the future. And 
and it's going to be up to, to DeMar and a, and a great team of physicians to help him. Sue, where is the biggest battle moving forward for DeMar Hamlin? Where will that take place? There's the right answer. There's only one. Well, you got to listen to the question. Okay. There's one right answer here. Where will the next big battle take place for DeMar Hamlin? Take a step. Take a step. I still don't know what you mean. Who is going to secure the first media interview with DeMar Hamlin? Of course, So that there's going to be. So will it be Joe Buck? Will it be someone else at ESPN? Will it be, like Oprah puts people on her couch. She doesn't do that much anymore. But you know, and you know, someone should really, at some point, there should be a documentary made about this. And maybe there's a book because these producers, like the morning show producers in particular, today's show, um, huh. Good Morning America, and I, I think it's pretty much like it used to be in the past. If something happens, I'll give you an example, like the Idaho case. When that broke, I, I don't know for sure, but what typically would happen is if they're in New York, they see a big story that's on the radar, they're like, okay, we, we're sending you right now. You're getting on that mm-hmm. um, that airplane Remember what happened with the, the the situation in Kenosha, Wisconsin, with Rittenberg? You had during the trial there was a producer for MSNBC that was tracking the uh, the jurors in the bus, and they pulled them over. The cops are like, "Hey, you can't be doing this." So they they play a fiercely competitive game wow. with trying to get somebody on there. This is a little different because you have to go through an agent. It's not like you can knock on someone's door. Still. But still, it, there's going to be some negotiation with that. Oh, right? I wonder who will get it. Boy, you are 100 percent right. Curious about that. The Someone's battle is going on right now. It'll be a big Super Bowl weekend expose or something like that. Have a great night. We'll talk tomorrow. The national championship game starts in about 35 minutes. Get more at 971talk.com. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.